Welcome to Professoring, the show that gives you the R&R. The real and realer about life in academia. I'm Badia Ahad Lagardi, literary scholar, native Chicagoan, super stepmom, amateur golfer, and your co-host. And I'm Anthony Ocampo, sociologist, writer, super Los Angelino, puppy parent, super Virgo, and your other co-host. What's a super Virgo? Super Virgo means super attention to detail. Uh-huh. To the point where sometimes I keep myself up at night because... Because <laughs> what? I'm thinking about whatever needs to happen the next day and planning it out instead of going to bed. I have terrible sleep hygiene. Mm. So you should work on that. I should. I should. There's so, a lot of science that says that getting good sleep is really the key to everything. I know. My partner's a scientist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. And on that note, today on this episode of Professoring, we are going to talk about living a life of the mind outside of the academy. So what does it mean for you to be a reader, to be a writer, to do all of this wonderful work outside of the context of your academic work? So I wanted to ask you a twofold question, Badia. Two? Twofold, twofold. Okay. Okay. So the second As one- As an academic, you get a lot of practice I answering know. twofold questions. Yes, okay, so I, want to know number one Badia when did you first fall in love with reading <laughs> now you have to tell people that reference it's from brown sugar <laughs> no one, the movie brown sugar Sanaa Lathan it's it's like a classic it classic is a classic like. so Badia when did you first fall in love with reading and what's the second part of the question what are you reading right now as I mentioned in my intro, I am a literary scholar, which means that I read for a living. <laughs> and I've always loved reading since I was a child. You read in more ways than one, I must say. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sorry to Anthony has you. experienced my reads on multiple occasions. Yeah, lunch, dinner, <laughs> right now. <laughs> emails. I'm queen of the read. But so yeah, I've always loved reading, obviously so much so that I decided to do it for a career. Um, But in terms of what I'm reading right now, I'm reading a lot of things right now. I don't know if I told you, but I have a little challenge. It's not really a challenge. It's more of an accountability thing going on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I decided for 2020 that I had become so disconnected from reading for pleasure that I was going to read a book for pleasure every week. Every week? Every week. It's really ambitious, but I feel like you have to be. I had to just like attack it. I like the books that you're curating on that list. I've read a couple of them. There's a couple of memoirs. And yeah, I, well, I decided that I was gonna read a book a week. I was gonna post the book on Instagram at the beginning of the week for Instagram accountability. And um, so far, so good. We're midway into February. So, you know, normally these resolutions, I think, fall apart like at the beginning of the month. So it looks like I'm on a good schedule. And it's been really exciting. I just started putting together a stack of books at the end of 2019. And I'm going to make my way through that stack for 2020 for the year. So I'm not really taking recommendations. People love to do that when you tell them that you're reading like a lot of books. They want to tell you about everything that they're reading and they want you to read it too. But because I wanted to be totally selfish and read what I wanted to read when I wanted to read it, 
I'm not really taking recommendations right now. You have to read this one book. You have to read this one book. (laughs) And I shouldn't have said that because I know that (laughs) the minute I said that, you were going to offer me all these recommendations. (laughs) Well, I have this one that I must bring it up because it's... We chatted about it, right? This new memoir by this poet, Saeed Jones. Yes, How We Fight for Our Lives. Which is... Saeed Jones is... uh, Black queer... Poet yeah. from Texas, yep. and he just wrote this gorgeous, gorgeous memoir about coming of age, uh, black and queer, and the different contexts that he's been in. Everything from Texas to growing up in a Buddhist family, mm-hmm. with also having Christian ties, and also what it's like to be black and queer in college and young adulthood. And it's just so so. If there's a book that anyone needs to help them resurrect your love of reading, I definitely recommend Saeed Jones' book, How We Fight for Our Lives. So that's my one wreck. Well, I reread it. That oh, was, you read it? Okay. That was the first book that I read in my challenge for the new year. Uh-huh. So I, I didn't really enjoy it. But actually, I read it because it was one of the, I should say it is, because we haven't made a final decision yet, but I'm on, um, in terms of university committees, I'm on the best committee ever. Uh-huh which is the first year text selection committee. Ooh, that's one where they have to... Yeah, they have all of the incoming first year students read the same book and then they have the author come in and give a talk at first year convocation. Yeah. So it's kind of like a shared text thing. So I'm all about saying no to like excessive service, but basically this is a committee where you all get to talk about a bunch of books and then the university like buys the books for everybody on the committee, and then you like read the books and talk about them at the meetings. So it's basically like a university-sponsored book club. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably like the least, you know, like it doesn't feel like I'm on a committee. It kind of feels like I'm just in a room with a bunch of my smart colleagues talking about books that first-year students should read. So Saeed Jones' book was one of them. Another one of the books was Dear America. Oh, Jose Antonio Vargas. Yes. Yes. So I read that one too. That was another one that I read. Well, I finished Zadie Smith's collection of short stories. She's amazing. Union Station. Love her. I have to say, not quite sure how I feel about all of the short stories in the collection, Uh but there are definitely some gems. Yeah. And there. So I would definitely say check that one out. And then Cal Newport's Deep Work, which we talked about. Yeah. So that was one of the books. And then this week I'm reading Ann Patchett's Bel Canto. Uh-huh. So um, I'm very excited about that. And uh, that's that's on my list. But it, but I have to say it's been a, a great experiment. So I can I share one nerdy thing about books? Yes. So my favorite thing to read is memoir. So I read okay. a lot of memoir and I'm going to talk about what you said about this college read and the, the ironic thing about this first year common read. Memoir I like because, and I especially like memoir by queer folks of color or women of color because it's it almost provides this roadmap for how to navigate the world in hmm. because they've had to do it with no prescribed rules for how to mm-hmm. you know experience school, experience the workplace. But rewinding to the the irony of you on this committee for the common read, I went to a college where there was a first year common read and I, I, I was laughing a little bit in my head because as a kid like you, I used to love reading. I loved reading all through high school, whether it was novels or essays. And then the funny thing is college kind of killed my love of reading, hmm. to be honest, because 
you're in college, you're taking classes, and professors assign so much reading. Hundreds mm. and like, it's not unusual for professors to assign hundreds of pages of reading a week for whatever it, yeah. the case may be. And I was already adjusting to college, being in a new city, being in a new environment, feeling like I didn't understand what was going on. And so reading was not the business for me. And then you get to <laughs> graduate school and I mean, to be honest, I guess college was all about learning how to read fast and learning how to read for function. Yeah. And so that was pretty much my undergrad PhD life. It was this there was this ethos of you got to read as much as possible so that you have breadth of the field, which makes total sense. That's the training you have uh, when you're getting your PhD. But I feel like I didn't really come back to my love of reading until many years into being a professor when mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to read sociology books. I want to read the books that are at the airport on the front desk <laughs> of Hudson's yeah. bookseller or whatever. And yeah, I just I just needed a break. And yeah. so I wanted to read slow. I wanted to like laugh when I was reading. Yeah. And so that was my entree. And, and to be honest, I feel like I haven't gone back to wanting to become that super consumer of academic writing because the reading has become fun again. Yeah, I think my issue is that when you teach novels for a living, (laughs) that boundary gets blurred really quickly. And so one of the only parameters that I set for myself with my book experiment, my book challenge, is that these are books that I probably would not teach. I want to have a clear separation between work novels and pleasure novels. And like you, I think it's just because everything that I get my hands on, I'm thinking about how am I going to teach it in the classroom? How am I going to write an article about it? I mean, this is how I have to think about novels, you know, as kind of academic projects. So. I don't know if graduate school killed my love for reading, but it certainly didn't allow me to have that clear distinction between reading for pleasure Uh and reading for work. Which actually brings me to another thing that's obviously related to reading. Mm -hmm. You know, we've created this dichotomy between reading for work and reading Mm -hmm. for pleasure, but that also applies to writing as well, right? And so I was going to ask you, I've read some of your... (laughs) quote unquote non-academic pieces yeah. it's such a misnomer because there's obviously a lot of intellectual engagement in any form of writing yeah. or or speaking or whatever but i wanted you i wanted to get your i read this wonderful piece you wrote about your experience growing up yeah and i just wanted to hear from you what it was like for you to take a break yeah. from the academic writing to write something that was number one personal on like that level of personal, but also just freed from the conventions of your your disciplinary standards of writing. Sure. And well, tell us what it was about too. I know, it was about, yeah. I, I know what it's about, but <laughs> they don't. Yeah, that was my first kind of entree into non-academic writing or writing for a, a general public. And it was a piece that was called For Father's Day. And it was about just my experience growing up with my dad, who was a complicated and problematic figure uh, in my life for a very long time until his passing. And I don't know how 
a lot of writers feel when they're kind of coming to the the desk to produce something. But for me, I always know that something needs to be written when I'm thinking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I have this idea about something that it just is like an itch that needs to be scratched. And until I get the words on the paper, then I just can't let go of it. Yeah. And so when I wrote that piece, that's precisely how I felt when I came to the table. And I'm not saying that like academic writing, you don't bring a certain amount of passion or interest to that space, but non-academic writing is just a different experience because it's also 100% me. It's like mm-hmm. my voice. I don't have to worry about, okay, am I citing the right people? Is there somebody right. that like I'm forgetting here? And do I need to do you know another scan of the literature to make sure that you know I'm incorporating all the right you know it's like I feel like there's a certain kind of responsibility obviously to other scholars yeah. when you're doing because you're you're participating in a conversation yeah and that's not to say that you're not participating in a broader conversation with writing for a public audience but you know it really is just you on the page mm-hmm. um, what I was surprised about was. I mean, you're writing for an academic audience. Obviously, people read it who are in the field or who may follow your work. And when you see them at conferences, it's always really nice when people say, you know, I read your book, or I read your article, this is this is great. But writing that public piece was just kind of jarring in a way because of the range of people that reached out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because the only thing you had to connect with in that story is being the child <laughs> of someone who maybe was an imperfect parent, right? Which is something, <laughs> to be honest, I feel like there was a lot of specificities about this essay that you wrote, mm-hmm. but it, the, the, that underlying theme of parent-child yeah. imperfection, I mean, everybody can relate to that. Yeah, so I felt like it gave people an in. And you don't always get that with your academic work. You know, I have my friends or family that read my academic pieces and they're like, that was nice. (laughs) (laughs) That was very nice. (laughs) But they don't they don't have anything to say about it. Like there's no way for them to kind of participate in a conversation that's going on there. Right. Uh what is my family saying about, you know, black people in psychoanalysis in the 19th century? Like, I mean, there's just like nothing there for them to hang on to, but. Well, I know that's the dinner table convo at my family. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. But yeah, so yeah, but you know, you'd be surprised about how many people have something to say about having a complicated relationship with their father. Most definitely. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, I have an interesting story about writing personal versus academic because I've over time tried to just not see it as so dichotomous and Mm -hmm. I feel like this is one of the privileges so I just FYI folks I'm at a teaching institution where the research expectations aren't nearly as demanding as a, a research university and so one of the unintended things that happened because of that unique situation was that uh, one of my editors for my first book, which was about Filipino Americans coming of age in Los Angeles, 
I mentioned this to them and their ears peaked up because they they were like, oh, that means you have a lot more creative freedom for how you want how, the way you yeah. want to write this book, which I didn't even think about when I first started thinking about transforming my dissertation into a book. And so, to be honest, they asked me to think a little bit about what kind of book I wanted to write. And this is not the analogy I would use now, but I, I told them basically, like, I want to write a Malcolm Gladwell. Not that I love Malcolm Gladwell, but I do. I, I do. Not all of his. Not all of his stuff. I'm a big fan of his podcast. Oh, he does have a good podcast. Revisionist history. It's excellent. He does well researched. He's a great storyteller. Yeah. I think, uh, regardless of whether it's the podcast or or the mm-hmm. book, his pages turn. Yes, they and do. And so, no, I don't think anyone can knock him from that. Of course, you can question all sorts of things, and academics love doing that, particularly with him. <laughs> 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 but here's the deal. People read his book. And at the end of the day, I wanted folks to read about Filipinos and not just Filipinos of all different backgrounds, but the general public. And so I told them that. And so they actually encouraged me to read a lot of non-academic pieces, um, read creative nonfiction, which at first freaked me out. And (laughs) as I was writing the book, I can't tell you that the thought the pervasive thought of, wow, I'm like destroying my academic career because I'm writing a book that's quote unquote, I'm aiming for accessibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I was just imagining this, but I feel like that was something that w- that instilled a lot of fear. And I actually had one professor who I hold very dear to my heart that I asked um, to, to give me feedback on the book. And he gave me that oh so devastating polite look that <laughs> professors give yes. and he was like oh I feel like your book was a little too personal hmm. which I mean there are moments where I I mention anecdotal things about my life but in that moment I, I it just sort of sealed the deal that I was making a, a huge mistake but mm-hmm. then the book got published and I realized that Perhaps there may have been academics that thought it was too personal, but opting to write in that more Malcolm Gladwelly, and I literally thought, like, I love how he's an adjective, by the way. He's he's an adjective. <laughs> this is I wanted I wanted to write a book that if you were sitting, if you were in a subway, or you're just sitting around waiting or using the bathroom, like Anthony. I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a TMI. <laughs> The pages would turn. <laughs> anyway, but you get my point. I get like, your point. Okay. I wanted something that would yes. be a page turner. And I just got really, I think, addicted to meeting folks that I, that wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as readers. Mm-hmm. Say, like, I enjoyed reading that. That made me feel good. And yeah. so that's now the feeling that I've begun to chase more and more. Yeah, and I think that we talked about this a little bit before, just how hard it is to write in a way that is accessible without sacrificing the complexity of ideas. It's hard. It's really hard to do. So it takes a lot more effort, to my mind, than writing for a purely academic audience because I can just actually take up some jargon and use it as a shortcut to get to where I need to be. Right. But when you're really trying to engage an audience that's not going to get that jargon, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to do a little bit more work to have the same impact. Right. 
Yeah, for sure. So. For sure. And because of that, I I think I've been really obsessed lately with listening to podcasts or YouTube videos of writers talk about writing. Mm-hmm. What's their process? What's their routine? Mm-hmm. Their idiosyncratic tricks. You know, for me, it's like I always have to wear a hoodie when I write or little <laughs> things that get you going. But it's been really cool to hear writers who have these New York Times bestseller books talk about how hard writing is for them. It's made it a lot less scary for me to, whenever those moments come up for me. Yeah. Well, I think it's like anything, like people who do it well tend to make it look easy and it's not. I mean, and so I think that those narratives are so important too because they dispel the myth that you know, these people are just geniuses mm-hmm. or that, you know, they just are moved by all this inspiration yeah, and yeah. it's just a lot of discipline and a lot of hard work. That's my two cents on reading and writing. Yeah. Is there anything you wanted to add? I do. I do. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm really into this. Like I have this, these aspirations of wanting to do more creative writing, nonfiction, um, other types of essay writing, for example. And I know there are a number of academics who do this brilliantly, like Imani Perry at Princeton, Kiaze Lehman at University of Mississippi, Tressie McMillan Cottons, obviously a sociologist that does this, uh, Roxane Gay, uh, who was once at Purdue. But I think I got to say this too. I used to romanticize the idea of saying, screw academic writing, I'm just going <laughs> to become a writer for the public, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, maybe that feeling was shaped by, I don't know, maybe I submitted a journal somewhere or a grant and I just didn't get, I got rejected and I was feeling all kinds of, feeling some kind of way or okay. whatever. But I, I want to share this story of this this professor I met. I was at a baby shower of one of my close friends and I met this communications professor, Fred Turner, who's at Stanford, who really reshaped the way I see the relationship between academic writing and and public writing. Because I think that there's this way in which we tend to characterize academic writing as jargony and quote unquote more rigorous, but then public writing as more accessible for the public, but less rigorous. I know a lot of people do that implicitly Mm -hmm. or explicitly. But when I was at this baby shower and I met this dude, Fred Turner, who used to be a journalist in Boston, he talked about having both perspectives of having been a journalist and the joy of writing those articles that just, they go viral and all the conversation and notoriety that happens from that. But then after, just by virtue of the news cycle, mm-hmm. after like a day or two, <laughs> people forget that article. And he talked about how when he first started writing academic pieces, yeah, they don't have the same viral impact as, say, a piece in The Atlantic. But what's cool about academic articles is they get taught in classes. Your yeah. colleagues teach them to students who get inspired to do new projects based on them. Yes, you, your articles don't make as big of a splash, mm-hmm. but there's a little bit of a slow burn yeah. that happens over time. And so oh. I think that framing of it has allowed me to mitigate this false dichotomy between like academic writing and and public writing and so i it, it just helped reminded me of that academics have 
just enormous privilege of access to colleagues that work with university presses or Mm -hmm. journal outlets. And so, you know, those are good things, too. So those are good things. Yeah. And it is nice, you know, two, three, four years after you've written something, you've kind of forgotten about it and moved on. And then someone runs into you and tells you how much they were inspired by your book or how much it meant to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good feeling. That is a good feeling. So. That, that happens to you. Yeah, I know you, it happens to you too. That. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. So, so that's very cool. Yes. So thank you for indulging. This was actually a topic I wanted to talk about really <laughs> badly. And so thank you for indulging my super nerdy, wanting to talk about reading and craft and process. No worries. Uh, I just love, I love talking about craft. And I, I feel like academics don't talk about the process of writing enough so no because it's usually an an externally driven activity it is right i gotta get tenure i gotta get promotion i gotta get blah 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 i gotta get so it's all about like writing for an external reward as Uh opposed to writing for the internal joy so and so i'm not mad that we gave some time to that thank you thank you but before we go to our break i just want to tell everyone may you all fall in love with reading and writing all over again. So uh, we're gonna hear a little bit from NCFDD. We'll be back soon. The National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, or NCFDD, is a professional development organization with the mission of changing the face of power in the academy. We aim to strengthen the higher education system and improve the academic experience by offering specialized coaching and mentoring to faculty, postdocs, and graduate students. Please visit us at www.facultydiversity.org to learn more about our services, including institutional membership, our faculty success program, and our on-campus workshops. Welcome back. (laughs) It's us again, Badia and Anthony. We are here for our usual segment. For every episode, we always close it out with peer review. We all know what peer review is. Peer review is that wonderful thing where we got a bunch of different folks that comment on a journal article or a book that you've written. And we all know the stereotype of reviewer number one being that person that just bends over backwards, loves the piece that you wrote. And then there's reviewer number two who, I don't know, for whatever reason, is just gunning to take your article down. And of course, this is an oversimplification. It's, it's a lot more complex than that, but we are using the analogy for our usual segment. And Badia and I are gonna serve as your reviewer number one and two around a certain topic. And today's topic is, Badia, what is today's topic? Today's topic is teaching evaluations. Teaching evals. Yes. And there's a lot to say about teaching evals, mostly negative things. I think that's <laughs> what we <laughs> generally hear. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of discussion around the way that teaching evals don't really measure the quality of instruction and the way that they function as these really biased spaces for largely disgruntled students, particularly if you are a faculty person of color, if you're queer, if you're a woman, you get a lot of evaluations that have very little to do with all of that blood, sweat, and tears that you put into 
you know, designing the course and to teaching the course and you get feedback about what you're wearing or how your voice sounds or what your hair looks like and things like that. So, you know, it's not a great place. At the end of every term, I have to say that I literally hold my breath when I open my evals because I just am bracing myself for some comment that has nothing to do with the subject that I actually taught that term. And, you know, it's also, in addition to the biography of the actual instructor, the subject matter, too, can can shape how evals come. If you teach about critical topics, I don't even want to say controversial, but, like, topics that some students just aren't trying to engage with. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the case if you're teaching some university required course and students believe that, you know, it should be taught in a particular way. So I remember very early on in my career when I was tasked with teaching a major American writers course and I got not a lot, but a few bad evals because people thought that I missed a few key authors (laughs) in teaching that (laughs) class. A student actually wrote on one evaluation something like, the professor made this a course about race, not about American literature. It's good that American (laughs) literature and race are two totally different things. Yeah. I'm glad you got checked on that, Padilla. (laughs) I know. I know. They even wrote, I remember that they wrote something like, there was no Hemingway or nothing. And it actually said that. No Hemingway or nothing. I would love for you to find And Hemingway was spelled wrong. I just want to put that <laughs> I was going to say, I, I wish you had a full-on public debate with a student that was disgruntled about not enough Hemingway or whatever it was spelled. And but. it literally was like nothing. Like the G was missing in everything. I was like, well, there's that. So that, that happens. Um, I've been called hottie. Hottie? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not like people that far from the truth, but still, <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to acknowledge your beauty. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've, I've been called posh a few times, and uh-huh. I wasn't entirely mad uh-huh. <laughs> at the scripture, but but, but no, I mean, by and large, I, I mean, you know, I've won teaching awards. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've gotten really wonderful evaluations, term after term, but. I think that the structural difficulties of that assessment process, I mean, it's just there. there's a lot of built-in bias, yeah. even in the questions that are being asked. So that's my general assessment. But I do, as I mentioned to Anthony when we were talking about this as a potential peer review topic, that I don't like the institutionally mandated assessments, but I always give a mid-semester assessment that gives me precisely the feedback that I'm looking for. And what's on this mid-semester? So I asked four questions. Do I know what the four questions are? I do want to know the four questions. So the first question I ask is, what are the most important things you have learned so far Uh in this class? Yeah. Okay. Just so they acknowledge that like some learning actually took place, even if they were resistant to it, it forces them to think about the fact that they actually are coming away with something that they didn't know before. Yeah. Second question is, what don't you think you understand well enough? So where are some of the gaps, right? What are some of the things that we've done that maybe I 
went by them really quickly. Uh-huh. They didn't have time to process. So yeah. like, what would you like to, you know, maybe recap? The third question is, what steps could you take to improve your own learning in this course? Oh, nice. Some accountability there. Yeah. Like, it's not just about like me doing all the hard labor here, but yeah. you know, what could you do? And I have to tell you, that question is always so revealing. Some people actually write things like, you know, the cliff notes just aren't gonna cut it in this class. Oh. <laughs> I'm gonna have to read the books. And I'm like, good for you. You know, like, I'm glad that you realize like this is an intervening moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And then I ask, are there any suggestions you would like to make about how to improve this course? Mm. I like this evaluation because it doesn't really leave a lot of space yeah. for all the other nonsense. Yeah, that's you true. Know? Those are very pointed questions yeah. that I think are useful for improving the ambiance of a class. Well, what I like, because I'm very much into the feedback loop, is yeah. that after I've collected these and I've gone through them, I put a lot of the responses like on a PowerPoint uh-huh. and I say, you know, across the board, people thought that we were moving too fast. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take off one of the readings mm-hmm. and I'm going to slow us down a little bit. And so... I mean, you get bonus points for even showing that you're willing to make some adjustments. They feel empowered. Yeah. Right? That, like, they actually expressed a concern. Yeah. And you acknowledged it and you did something about it. Yeah. And I think that that's, that hits it on the money is this idea that you don't want the professor eval end of the semester to be the one moment where folks unload. Yes. (laughs) And unleash their, some of justifiable anxieties or just whatever. Right. And so... One question that I have learned to do in something not exactly like this, but I I saw it, I don't know, I saw it somewhere on Twitter, but I now ask students, what do you wish professors would know about you and your life? Mm. And those were really v- revealing. I can only imagine. Yeah. I had folks that are like, you know, I'm a single parent raising two children. Childcare is not the, always the easiest thing to, to access. I, I work 40 hours a week. You know, these sort of things are good just to show the position from which everyone's coming to the table. It's a good reminder that especially if you are someone who's had a pretty conventional collegiate experience, mm-hmm. that that's a, been a privilege that you were actually just able to go to school, be a student 100% yeah. of the time, yeah. worry about your studies and not much else. Yeah, the one revealing comment I got was and the student confided in me that this is what they wrote, was they said something to the effect of, being a student is not the most important thing in my life. Mm-hmm. Which I couldn't be mad at because yeah. they're raising uh, a kid solo and of course yeah. that would be the most important thing above class. And I had to respect the fact that like people have different relationships to college. It means different things and it's not always what you see on TV. Yeah. The one thing I will add about teacher evals that I do my darndest to do. Yes, I'm queer, but I'm also a cisgender male professor. And ever since my graduate school years, when we used to share an office hour space with uh, women graduate students, I will tell you, I've never ever gotten the pushback that women instructors, women of color instructors get. Even me being a faculty of color, queer professor, it's just so different to be a cisgender male professor versus uh, a professor as a woman. And I think that I know a lot of my women colleagues, they get nervous about evals because of all the things that you mentioned and then feel the need 
to explain to tenure and promotion committees that, hey, evals are biased because of gender, because of race, etc. And so I feel like it's my duty, it's my responsibility as a, as a male professor to remind students about the biases that they have about yeah. uh, the gender biases they may have toward professors or the biases they may have toward professors who have an accent. And so I think that my peer review, if there's anything you want to drill home with peer review about teacher evals, yes, they're not perfect. But think about if you're in a position of privilege, what can you do? How can you talk to your students in a way that you can contribute to making teacher evals as close to fair as possible? And for me, that's reminding students that they don't treat their women professors the same as their male professors. Even if they're women students. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's my that's my hot take on peer on peer review teacher evals. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, thanks for listening to us talk about uh, reading, writing, yeah. and evaluating. And if you want to contribute something to this conversation, we would love to hear from you at podcast at facultydiversity.org. And you can also find Anthony and myself on the Twitter. Mm-hmm. I'm at Badia Ahad. And I'm at Anthony Ocampo. Would love to know what you're reading, writing, and your thoughts on evals. Living a life of the mind outside the academy. And that too. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Bye. Bye.